welcome to Murder on Lover's Lane. Ooh. Ooh. Presented by Old Timey Crimey. And I am Christy. I am Amber. And we have the second part of the story we began telling last week to uh, gift unto you today, to bestow upon you. It is ours, and we hand it to you. And Amber just realized she has the wrong show notes in front of her. I went to the next case. I forgot that this was part two. <laughs> oh, you did. So I have 30 pages for the next case. <laughs> well, you're ready when we do that. Although I found another next case. Oh, God damn it, Christy. But you, we're still going to do that case. Yeah, just, it's there. It, it's there when we're ready for it's it. It's there when we're ready for it. You get, you get a break soon. I'm really sorry. Anyhow, yeah, that's, that's, that's the news I found. I added to the spreadsheet. <laughs> I'm going to double check it because it's not really mentioned in any of the recaps and, and different news articles that, that drew our attention to this. Wait, it's not which been one? It's a... Uh, I didn't know how recently you added it to the spreadsheet. because It was I, just a couple days ago. Um, it is Edith, oh, sorry, Edith Crum and Andrew Loftus Jr. No, I did not do that one. Okay. okay. It might actually have a solution. Like, you know, I just glance at the newspaper articles to get a basis for whether or not it fits. And it seems like it, it could go either way. Because, Much like me. Yeah, exactly. It's the amber of cases. They found somebody they liked for it. I don't know how much further it went than that. Yeah, well, it's and it's hard to say, too, because at this time, uh, police had a little more room for persuasion. Yes, there is that as well. Um, but I think it could be interesting to look at and decide whether or not they actually got the person or whether this could be, you know... Eggs in the armpits. Eggs in the armpits, yes. That was one uh, method of interrogation that Amber found in a case. They put uh, boiled eggs in the armpits for some reason. Because they were still screaming hot. Oh, yes, that's right. Have you ever boiled eggs and then tried to peel them when they're still too hot? Oh, yeah, you can't do that. Right? Imagine that in your armpits. True, that's horrible. With, like, like somebody, like, hugging you to keep your arms down and hold them in real tight. (laughs) That is so weird still. Well, they got a confession out of an innocent man for it, so it's effective. It works. (laughs) Sort of. It's not ethical. (laughs) There's a reason it's not done today. Yeah, a couple of reasons, probably. Back then, unfortunately, if the police liked somebody for a crime, they're going to get that confession somehow. If they liked somebody for a crime, then they liked their pliers that they were going to use to peel out their nails. Now, that's an extreme example, but I'm sure it's happened at some point in time, honestly. Okay, so. Anyway, back back to to it. (laughs) Yes, that thing that we do here. Yes, we are going to do part two of the Clarence Yeager and Hazel Bird story. And I'm going to recap that in a second. First, I have two things. First of all, don't forget about our Patreon, because right now is the time to be a patron. Usually... What a time to be alive! What a time! Usually, you get one bonus episode a week, which is a great deal for five bucks a month. And those are bonus episodes where we kind of let loose a little bit more, and one of us tells the other one the story. We don't both know what's going on, so we're always trying to find weird things to stump the other to stump the other one or to shock the other one so i will say that when i look for cases i do like look for the little things that i'm like oh how will amber react to that and so that adds like an extra layer onto it i think and i got to say 
and I apologize for this in advance, but on our last uh, episode, bonus episode, I got to say, and she shot him in the dick. <laughs> that was a good one. So there is that. So patreon.com slash oldtimeycrimey. And come on over and you can listen to the like five minute samples of bonus episodes. And you can also do a seven day free trial. And when you do that seven day free trial, if you time it right, you'll also get an early access to this mini series, which is temporary only while we're doing this mini series, because eventually we'll be done with this mini series and then it won't be early access anymore. So our patrons get episodes five days in advance when I am on the ball. I might have I might have not been on the ball last week. <laughs> Holiday weeks screw me up so bad. <laughs> yeah, that, that's totally fair. So yeah, Patreon, come over. Hey, do the free trial. See, uh, we should have a contest. How many episodes can people listen to in a, in a seven days? <laughs> How many can you binge? Yeah. <laughs> the binge-a-thon. So that was my first thing. My second thing is that a little something delightful I discovered uh, I was taking a little break from research and I was like, oh, I'll find some more sayings from the Livingston brothers. You know, the funeral home, if you listen to our last episode, had little blurbs in their ad in, in like every single newspaper in a specific place. And they were wacky and weird. And wonderful. And wonderful and wonderful. And we said it was a sign that they had been drinking the embalming fluid. Well, I found out that it would have been really easy for them to drink the embalming fluid. The Livingston brothers say the best undertakers in Nebraska read the Hastings Tribune for news and order Livingston's embalming fluid for their best work. Livingston Brothers Funeral Home made embalming fluid. And sold it? Yes, yes, and sold it. Yeah. What does one need embalming fluid for if you are not in the funeral home business? Well, just that. Just the, just that, just the funeral home stuff. <laughs> but like, stop on by, buy a bottle of embalming fluid for why? Yeah, I'm not really sure why they advertised it in their local paper unless that's where all their business was, was local. Unless they just basically were the supplier for all the funeral homes in Hastings, Nebraska. Uh, maybe a lot of people in Hastings, Nebraska were really into like taxidermy stuff. Do they use embalming fluid? I don't know. Mummification? I don't know, honestly. It just it really cracked me up when I saw that they made that is, it. I was like, that is... That's fantastic. It is absolutely fantastic. There was, there was a little article about it. There is a manufacturing business in the city of Hastings that is rapidly gaining worldwide publicity because of the wonderful results of the product, which is Livingston Brothers Embalming Fluid. Like, what the hell? So they've been doing it for 25 years for their own use, but are now supplying the trade. And... This, okay, this is just weird. This is just a really weird way to put these things in an article that you're writing about the dead people you take care of. So I'm just going to say it. Some of the wonderful features of this fluid is the doing away entirely of the awful thing of removing the blood from the dead human body. A method used by all undertakers that use another fluid, and that is the thing that accounts for the dark, pretty color, puckered features, and ghostly appearance of a corpse. Another humane feature of this fluid is the doing away with the long, hollow instrument of we don't need to go into mutilating organs. Come on! Um, so yeah, it's, it's a really weird, really weird way to present this. 
but they have pronounced it the modern humane method of preparing the sacred dead for burial. I can tell that the Livingston Brothers people wrote that article <laughs> and basically submitted it as an article as a press release or whatever, and it got published because slow news week. So here's what I just learned from, thank you, Google. Uh, you can still buy embalming fluid from chemical companies, and apparently people smoke it. What? To get high. What? What? No way. <laughs> this is a prank. Okay, first of all, smoking a fluid seems like a mismatch of ideas. So it's, the first question is, can I buy embalming fluid? And the second is treatment for wet drug abuse. Wet drug abuse. There are all kinds of things in this world that I just do not know about. Even though... The withdrawal symptoms from PCP and embalming fluid are not usually life-threatening. They can be unpleasant. Oh my lord. That is something I never knew. Nope, nope, never knew. Could have gone a whole So they were drug dealers. They were drug dealers. They were, I bet they were definitely getting high on their own supply. Yeah, and I mean, even if they're just using it in a closed room with poor ventilation, they're high as a kite, and they're posting these ads, and that's amazing. <laughs> I think we figured out the ads. It really was the embalming fluid. So, all right, that was just my little amusement. And we will return to the Livingston Brothers at the end of the episode, and I will give you some, some final taglines of theirs, uh, those little weird things they put in the newspaper. But before we do that... Let's recap a little bit, just to kind of refresh your memories as to what we talked about the last time. And uh, if you have not heard that episode, I don't know why you're not listening to it now instead of this, because this will make more sense. But maybe you like to live life on the edge of confusion. I don't know. I do. That's, that's where I live. <laughs> I do kind of live there, too. So Clarence Yeager and Hazel Bird are our victims here they were a young sort of couple. They were, they were just starting out as a couple, really. Hazel, uh, after a divorce from her husband, Lawrence, had started working in the Jaegers' bakery over the summer while she was waiting for, you know, the schools to open back up because she was, of course, a teacher. They both had suffered some really deep tragedies, loss of a child, and then uh, Clarence had suffered... Uh, the loss of his wife, and then Hazel had her divorce. So they had a lot in common. They, they really are like a, a couple that kind of like, <laughs> I don't know of a non-corny way to say this, so I'm just going to lean into the corny. They touched my heart. With their trauma bonds. With their trauma bonds, yes. So they were uh, out one night for a drive in uh, August of 1925. And they were both found in the car the next day, shot in the head. And there had actually been some a little bit of arrangement of the scene here, mainly to try to hide the bodies from any passersby. And I guess it was even more logical. Uh, I saw one article that explained it. It was even more logical that they, you know, had, had taken a cushion from the seat and put it on top of Hazel. And that was probably because it would look like somebody had just tried to get under the cushion in order to get to the tools if they had a breakdown. So actually pretty, I mean, maybe they were just using the one thing that they had handy, the cushion. But I think that's a pretty 
that's pretty fucking smart. Yeah. <laughs> like, to, to stage it like a scene and have it be, have like an internal logic, internal consistency. So that's the situation there. And are you still reading about embalming fluid? No, I'm, I'm learning about the, uh, the Livingston Brothers uh, funeral business. So it's still open today, but they've merged with two other funeral homes. Oh, you know what? I did see on a, somewhere I saw an ad for like Livingston, like with two other names. And I was like, that was probably them. Yeah, it, it actually was. So um, it, they, they moved their business from Harvard on January 1st, 1904 to th 431 West 2nd Street. In 1945, the original owners retired. Don Butler and his brother Floyd purchased it, making it the Livingston Butler Funeral Home. And then in 1951, they merged with Boland Funeral Home, and uh, that had been in Hastings since 1913. So then it's the Livingston Butler Voland Funeral Home. Wow. And uh, they've moved a couple of times, been in their current location since 1981, and it is uh, apparently still in the family. Nice. But not the Livingston family. Now it's the Butler family that it's in. But yeah, very strange. Hmm. That's interesting. I don't know. I <laughs> fell down this hole. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's how I was. I, had no I was just curious to see if it was still in operation. And if we're making fun of the, the ancestors of people who are still running the business. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and we it, are. it seems like the original Livingston brothers kind of handed over the torch and then they kept the torch over there. Yeah. Yeah, they can keep that torch. Oh, another thing of interest that kind of came up in the days following was the fact that there had been two robberies on Hazel Street one week prior to the murders. That seems suspicious. That seems a little suspicious, yes. So you have that, you have other robberies going around in town and out of town, and you have an item from one of the robberies found at the murder scene. Yeah. A brown overcoat. And and these robberies, things like overcoats were taken, suits of clothes, jewelry. I mean, some stuff you can sell, but not what you would think of as like a lot of high ticket items. Yeah. And always a bag. Oh, yes. And a traveling case. Yeah. A bag, a traveling bag, leather usually. Um, so, yeah. Uh, and then um, that's pretty much where we left it. Uh, the the main person of interest that anybody could think of just yet was, you know, even if you were just listening to the episode, you probably were like, Lawrence, <laughs> Hazel's husband, ex-husband. So there is that. Um, and then Hazel had been pretty popular. She was a very attractive young lady. Uh, and she'd, she'd gotten some aspiring suitors, we'll call them. <laughs> they were aspiring suitors. How very PC of you. Yes, in the, the year since her divorce. Um, but it didn't seem like she actually wanted to accept any of them until Clarence came along. But those guys were still in the background, so we're going to be talking about a few of those too. Um, so yeah, let's talk about the investigation. What did they do here? What you know resources did they bring in? Well, they have the state sheriff, Sheriff Condit, come out to assist in the investigation. Now, he is having a really busy week. The same day that Clarence and Hazel were found, two desperados shot a North Platte policeman and a sheriff in Kansas. And they have planes searching for the people thought responsible. So there's a massive manhunt going on. He's got two murder cases. 
He's a busy guy. He's a busy guy. Now this other murder case. So he's here. Uh, they bring in some bloodhounds that uh, wouldn't be helpful. Or no, I can't remember if they actually brought in bloodhounds or if they said we won't bring in bloodhounds because too many people had been around the scene after the bodies were found. As was common. As was common, but they had even closed down the scene. Remember, we cheered. Yeah, but how long did they keep it closed? Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right, guys, we've seen all we can see. Let's go ahead and remove the tape. Let them go see if they can find any teeth. Maybe somebody wants to come and wash this car. Let's take it to the OK Garage. Take it to the OK Garage. It's OK. And uh, Clarence's father actually hired two detectives, one from Lincoln and another from Grand Island. He was dissatisfied with the official police investigation from pretty much day one, although he was certainly diplomatic about it. So, witnesses. We have some interesting witnesses here. An incident had happened um, at the pretty much at the place where Clarence and Hazel were later murdered. It was Sunday, August 9th, so two weeks prior to the murder, and a local couple had a little bit of a frightening experience in that same spot. Um, that was uh, a young lady accompanied by uh, Star Spankenberger. Love it. <laughs> Star Spankenberger, not to be confused with the Star Spangled Banner. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> or Steak Burgers. So, he is a mechanic employed in a Grand Island garage. There was just an, an uncommon number of mechanics back then. Um, and so he told the Associated Press, uh, oh, I'll just read you the article. A mechanic employed in a Grand Island garage told the Associated Press over the long distance telephone that on Sunday night, August 9th, he and a young woman friend were parked in his automobile on the north side of the cornfield where the blood-stained overcoat was found yesterday morning. They had been parked there about 30 minutes, he said, when the girl suddenly spied a man standing at the back of the automobile. He descended from his automobile, Spankenberg said, and told the man he was, quote, going to beat him up, whereupon, whereupon the man began to run, and after chasing him a short distance, he disappeared. Pretty soon, he called back to Spankenberg and declared, now I am going to get you. Spangenberg said he drove into Hastings to notify officials, but could not find any, and then mm. drove to Grand Island. <laughs> I love that. I love that part. But officials were inclined to place credence in Spangenberg's story when informed tonight and declared the man may have returned to the spot Sunday night and fired at the couple there, thinking it was Spangenberg. Mm. So that particular, you know, witness to another incident in the same place does bring forth a theory of mistaken identity, which we've seen in previous Lover's Lane cases. It's it's kind of prone, it's prone to many different potential motives, um, but a lot of them are because it's dark and lonely in these Lover's Lane yeah. murder scenes. Well, and, and so I'm, I'm less inclined to believe that just because the robberies that happened right near Hazel's house. Yeah. And he might have been angry, but he also might have been getting ready to take those two out. They spotted him before he could have the element of surprise. And so he's like, well, I'll get the next the next group of them. Exactly. It very well could have been just a case of, you know, they, they happened to be lucky enough to get away. So. Because that chick was vigilant. Yes. Yes, good on her. She's never named, which is. Of course not. 
But I, I appreciate that. They're they're protecting her honor. Yeah. Well, and she's the one that saved the day. Yes, she is. And her boyfriend gets out of the car and goes, I'm going to beat you <laughs> up. I'm going to beat you up. Dude, come on. Come up with something a little better. So there's also a report that two men had stopped at the uh, Derrick's residence uh, Sunday afternoon, the day of the murder, and asked for somebody named Bird. So that's oh. like, like a couple blocks away, respectively, from each of their houses. It's not necessarily like same street or neighborhood, but it's not far either. It seems like that bird was somebody unrelated, bird spelled with a Y instead of an I, who lived nearby. So that kind of, you know, everybody was all excited about that for a minute. And then it was like, oh, they're just, they're just looking for Mr. Bird. <laughs> different bird, different bird. So they did find the guy from the night of the... Murder, who had been driving that Ford coupe that was following uh, Hazel and Clarence when they were driving and accompanying um, Clarence's brother Lloyd uh, because his headlights were out. Um, so it's funny because Lloyd had said, yeah, I think it sounded like a Ford coupe. And sure enough, good ear. <laughs> I don't know how. He was a mechanic. <laughs> Maybe he was a mechanic too. Yeah, yeah, there Pretty much everyone was. He was a mechanic at the Better Than OK Garage. And so uh, that person following them was a mechanic at a Ford garage. Outstanding. <laughs> right? Outstanding. Telling you everybody's a goddamn mechanic in 1925. Well, so think about it, though. That is the hot profession. Mm -hmm. Because cars are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. That is the profession that you can get into and have a whole lifetime career and lots of business all the time because everybody's always buying these cars, these newfangled cars. And they're so newfangled and they don't always work great. But I mean, it's, it's the same thing now with tech because yeah. our, our concentration is on tech. And now when you go to school to, to get into tech, you're pretty much guaranteed job placement because mm -hmm. there's lots of those jobs available. The need is huge. Yeah, you're right about that. Yeah. So yes, just mechanics. Everybody was like, you know, I'm going to be a mechanic when I grow up. And then they were. Well, and I love the trend right now is, is trades. Because so many people went into the other things. Now trades need people. So now if you get into a trade, you get to skip school. And you know what? We need mechanics again. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's like a circle. <laughs> so like now, if you want to be a mechanic, you're gonna have a job because people have all these cars that need service. Only took us a hundred years to get back there. We got there. <laughs> yeah. So yes, they found that guy. Uh, he said there had not been any other cars on the road behind him, but he knew that he was following Clarence and Lloyd. Um, he explained everything to the police and I guess they just cleared him. They were never really specific about that, um, why they would, you know, they, there was not a lot of follow-up. Um, and the follow-up that was there was kind of half-hearted. Well, and it, it could be, too, like, hey, I know these guys. These are friends of mine. We went to school together. I did see them. And then I went back to the garage where me and my boss worked on the sound that was coming from the front wheel. Mm -hmm. Like, he could have had an alibi. could have had a really like, yeah. good. Yeah, but they're just, they're very vague about it to the extent where I have to put in my notes and I guess they cleared him. <laughs> Like, that's how vague they are, that I kind of, you kind of have to assume some things. I'm not super comfortable with that, but we do what we got to do. So. Yeah, they felt comfortable with it, I guess. So, but there is somebody who might have seen a car near the scene, and they say it was either a coupe or a sedan. There is also a lot of focus on coupes. So they, 
There's a lot of Cooper sedan for at first, and then eventually the sedan gets dropped, and they're all looking for coops. Only coops. <laughs> Only coops. Yeah. So uh, this is a Mr. Feist, and uh, he released, and he was re- when he was returning from Pauline Sunday night, he saw Clarence Yeager's car turned down the road where the bodies of the victims were found Monday. He also saw either a coupe or a sedan turn down the same road immediately after the Yeager car. Just as I came up from the south to the DLD, which is a road that they never spell out and is not on modern maps, uh, <laughs> Mr. Feist said, I saw three cars coming from the west. Jaeger's was ahead, a coupe or sedan followed, and the third car I took to be a new Dodge. I love mechanics. <laughs> My lights were on Jaeger as he turned north. I said to Lawrence Douglas, who was with me, there's Clarence. The Ford turned in after Jaeger, and the new car turned south. Sorry, let me reread that. The Ford turned in after Jaeger and the new car, turned south, and went down the Pauline Road at a high rate. As the time, Mr. Feist says that he came straight back downtown and unloaded block and tackle he had been using, putting them in the back of the Feist cigar store. Uh, he says he didn't see the occupants of the Ford. He doesn't know who they were, not even how many people were in there. So doesn't really clear anything up. Um, but it does give us this kind of snapshot of the moments before, you know? Yeah. That weird, like, you know, last person who saw them before they died kind of thing. It seems really strange to me that the car would have followed them immediately after and they still parked. Yeah, you would think you, you wouldn't. You know, you would you would either... I, mean, yeah, I guess maybe you would pull off to the side of the road and expect that that car would pass you and maybe that car would stop. Um, it could even be something like, oh, ooh, okay. It could be something like somebody flashes their lights at you and so, you know, you think there's something wrong so you pull over. And they pull over too, and then they get out of your car, come up to your car, and then they shoot. Something like that, too. Okay. So, there is also an ear witness. Ear witness? Ear witness. I said it. Okay. (laughs) There's a brick and tile company about a quarter mile from the scene, and the person working there said around 9 or 10 Sunday night, he heard a woman scream, and then a few minutes later, he heard three shots, uh, two together, and then another one alone. So definitely a weird, um, that sounds like it was probably either that murder or there's a murder that we all don't know about yet. Okay. So, and there's a brake man from a westbound Union Pacific freight train who saw a man trying to, quote, hop his freight, which should be a euphemism. That really should be. <laughs> oh, I man, I might wanna, steal it. I would hop his freight any day of the week. Um, around midnight on Monday, um, and he says he kept his face covered and acted suspiciously. So, um, and then, see, th- this case brings out all the witnesses. Oh my gosh, I don't think I've ever had so many people who, who show up in the paper with just, like, the weirdest stuff. There are two men who thought they saw a man and a woman emerge from the cornfields around that area. They had told authorities in a nearby town about it, but then they left town and no one could find them. So that's helpful. There were some footprints found in the cornfield, but they're not really able to get anything. Um, They believe they're connected with the murder, but they're difficult to interpret, although they have been measured and photographed. So my guess from that is maybe they were too, like, smudgy, maybe it had been muddy or something, you know? 
So that's my guess. Um, so yeah, it's two men were there reported that while they were leaving Hastings for Grafton about three o'clock on the Monday morning following the murder, they saw a man and a woman emerge from a cornfield east of Graf or, sorry Hastings. So this is the first time we get um, mention of a man and a woman. We don't really get a lot of other mention of it, but it's definitely an interesting possibility to consider. Yeah, well, and, and I mean, the woman could run distraction. Yeah. Damsel in distress. Oh, absolutely. Tap on the window, get their attention to her while her cohort walks up behind. Yeah. Like, yeah, it definitely could be a, a viable uh, way of, of doing all this. So, hmm. it's interesting to think, to think about a couple going around killing couples. That could be fun. That's, that's an interesting scenario, an interesting setup. I want to write that book. Um, all right, so, shall we talk about persons of interest, or do you want to get into forensics? I have everything very neatly organized Ooh. here so we can do forensics and then I was going to save theories for last and then talk about our own theories and thoughts um but uh so how, how, what, what are you feeling are you feeling persons of interest forensics let's go persons of interest okay I really felt that they were kind of they could they could go either way I considered moving forensics up and then I was like no we'll see what happens so of course the name on everybody's lips Lawrence Bird uh there were rumors flying around that he'd been seen around town recently, and uh, countless reports that Lawrence Bird, divorced husband of Mrs. Hazel Bird, was seen in Hastings during Fair Week, or a few weeks, few days before the tragedy had been rife since the tragedy was discovered. None of these have proven to have any foundation. The Tribune has checked every rumor. <laughs> Officers have also checked on every rumor, but up to three o'clock, none of the rumors could be verified. I love how they're like, no, we checked it and everything's fun. I guess the officers checked too, but you know, it's, it's we checked. That's what's important. <laughs> we did it. We did it. Also, the Omaha, Omaha Daily News tells us that Lawrence Bird, who was living in California at this time, had, had been away from Los Angeles where he was living with his sister for several months. Uh, or at the very least, his parents, who lived in Hastings still, had heard from him last uh, four months prior. So they're trying to contact him in California. And uh, they get... The police receive a telegram that said Bird left Los Angeles a few days ago. This was explained as a vacation that he was supposed to be back from soon. I'm, I'm sure that Hazel would have been like, Oh, it's nice that you get a vacation. Lawrence, it's really nice to see you get a vacation while I'm taking care of our child and working two jobs. Right? Yeah. Fuck you, Larry. Yeah, Larry's a bit of an incomprehensible toilet seat. I've decided that's my new insult. I like it. <laughs> my new go-to whenever somebody is just like gross beyond understanding or something. You incomprehensible toilet seat. So. Why is it square? <laughs> I'm glad you recognize what I'm referring to, referring to, which is my own joke. <laughs> because I'm just that much of a loser. So he's on vacation. They talked to his dad and his brother and both said that last they knew, Lawrence was in L.A. living with his sister. 
And everybody was really surprised as the days went on and Lawrence hasn't gotten in touch with authorities. The murders had been pretty widely publicized and it's his ex-wife, so he has to know by now, right? I mean, you would think as days and days go by. So the sheriff of, oh, sorry, actually I have, um, he does come in on August 31st, so six days after the murder, he does come in to the Santa Barbara um, police, I'm sorry, the Los Angeles police station. Lawrence Bird, 30, Santa Barbara plasterer strolled into the sheriff's office here, said he was wanted in Hastings, Nebraska for the slaying of his divorced wife and a man companion, and asked that he be housed in the county jail until authorities checked his alibi. No request being on file for his arrest, Bird was told to go back to his Santa Barbara, Barbara job and resume plastering. Oh, he was just trying to get the day off of work. <laughs> I'll turn myself in now. I'm going to go uh, get plastered. I mean plaster. So, yeah, he, uh, I guess there maybe there was some miscommunication between Los Angeles and Hastings, and they didn't know um, that they, they needed to keep an eye out for him. But finally, the sheriff of Los Angeles apparently talked to Bird, uh, said that Bird had come to them and proven his alibi. And the L.A. sheriff telegrammed the Hastings sheriff just this, just basically saying... Um, here, I have it actually. On investigation following your telegram on August 27th, it was found that Lawrence Bird's sister, Mrs. Alexander, had received a letter from him dated and postmarked Santa Barbara, California, August 24th, 10 a.m., stating that he was working in Santa Barbara and would be home on Saturday night. Deputies were detailed to locate and bring in Lawrence Bird, and on August 30th, having learned from his sister that he was wanted by this office, he came in voluntarily and was closely questioned regarding his movements for the past month. Bird stated that he was continuously employed as a cha uh, plasterer. So uh, the chief of police at Santa Barbara was telephoned for verification of Bird's alibi, and it was found okay. Okay. Yeah, they basically just say, oh, it's okay. And uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of strange. Um, and that is distance. That's about a 23-hour drive today with our faster cars and Probably smoother roads. Depends on the state. Uh, yeah, it would depend on the state. <laughs> um, but, like, yeah, even... Could you imagine? You would have to drive for a solid day, no sleep, make a murder happen, and then drive back for another solid day with no sleep, and then go to work. Yeah. And that's assuming you had the weekend off. Like, yeah, I doubt it. You would have had to miss work. But, and Yeah, and there's there's... That's a lot. I mean, I guess you, you could miss work and potentially still keep your job. You know, we don't know that he didn't miss work, but his alibi apparently was okay. So I guess that's what we get. He was cleared one way or the other. Lawrence Bird, no longer a suspect, although it takes a little while for that to happen. Now, there have been some itinerant horse traders around the area around the time of the Brown robbery. That's the robbery where the coat was found near the scene of the Clarence Bird, nope, Clarence Yeager and Hazel Bird murders. But Sheriff Harm traced them south of Harvard, that's our local sheriff there, and uh, that's 23 miles, and uh, they didn't have one bit of stolen property on them. Uh, now let's look at potential suitors. There's actually a, a quite, quite a gaggle of these. I love it, <laughs> we, a gaggle of suitors. We have a gaggle of bows. Um, or uh, aspiring bows. 
police looked at some of these guys that Hazel spent some time with or that wanted to spend time with Hazel. There is a distinction. Um, we have Henry Henricks. Now, he was Hank from the phone call. She had received a phone call the day of the murder around 6.30, and somebody had called, played the Guess Who game with her. She apparently got it wrong when she guessed Clarence. She didn't think it was cute. Yeah. And then uh, when he asked her for a date, she said she had other plans. He said he knew nothing more, and he was questioned and released. So one thought that I had before I knew that, that Lawrence Bird was er, cleared was, okay, in that conversation where with that, that witness account that we get of that phone conversation or of at least Hazel's side of it, um, she says that Hazel said Clarence when she guessed and it seemed that she had been wrong. I was like, Clarence and Lawrence can sound a lot alike. They could, it yeah. could have been like, you know, okay, I'm going to say, guess who? Guess who? Clarence? Oh, yeah, no. Uh, did you say, wait, did you say Clarence? Or Lawrence? <laughs> hey, Lawrence. <laughs> so that was the thought I had, and before I found out that the phone call was actually from Hank, so that just completely uh, was a worthless theory. But uh, we give you... Everything on the show. So we will also it. give you the useless theories that pop into our adulpated minds while we research. They also cleared August Hamilton. Now, he was a cousin of Clarence's who'd been paying some attention to Hazel lately. And, quote, an ardent letter from him was found among Mrs. Bird's effects. So he had written her, apparently, a very, uh, a bit of a love letter. Um, Which seems so wrong, because it's like, she's dating your cousin. I mean, we don't know exactly when the letter was dated, uh, when it was written. It could have been Fair. like a couple months old, because I mean, she and Clarence hadn't really been together for very long yet. Um, so that, that settled pretty quickly. Hamilton was able to, he had a good alibi. He'd been 500 miles away since August 16th, so he was in Sterling, Iowa. Uh, another one is Floyd Miller. And um, here he just kind of seems like a ghost because he just, everybody's talking about him, but nobody can find him. He had called on her at her parents' house a couple times. And so it has been reported to the police by a man who knew Miller that Miller had told him he had a wife and a child. And that when asked where the wife and child lived, he said they were staying at 327 East 5th Street. This is the house of J.F. Harder, where Mrs. Bird lived. So he says he has a wife and child at Hazel's house. Mm -hmm. That is a little zany of a thing to say, I think. Uh, he told me, the informant of the police said, that his wife and child lived there and that he was going to desert them. I told him, the police informant went on, that it is a serious thing to desert a wife and child. He then told me he then told me that with a companion, he had gone to Trumbull and found his wife had gone there in company with another man. So. He's delusional. He's got some things going on. <laughs> and he needs to go take care of. And the cops are like, we know he's lying. 
Like everybody knows this. Nobody thinks this is actually true. But nobody really can figure out why. Like, what is the purpose of this lie? It is a stupid, stupid, stupid lie. He had said that around the 4th of July, and then he left town a few weeks after that. And uh, he doesn't get uh, much ink after the first flurry of, you know, uh, papers where they're like, where's Floyd Miller? Until January 26th, when they actually go to the extent of um, putting a wanted poster of sorts in the Hastings Democrat. And it says, uh, Floyd Miller was a suitor of Hazel Harder Bird and has not been heard of since the murder. Sheriff George Harm of Adams County has sent the following description of Miller to officers throughout the entire country. 24 years old, 6 feet tall, heavy dark hair, weight about 180 pounds, has long scar across right groin. What? <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> How is that an identifier? <laughs> you have to get really close to him. Does he often walk around with no pants? Yeah, all right. Well, that's, yeah. <laughs> like, you'll know him by the scar on his right groin. Yeah. I hope I don't see his right groin at any point. Why would I know him by that scar? Yeah. Uh, it finishes, Miller is a rather rough fellow of cowboy fashion and works almost any kind of labor. Well, cowboys wear pants. Yes. Maybe he's wearing um, backless chaps, but they're also frontless. I have concerns. <laughs> I really, like, on the wanted poster, butterfly tattoo on his ass cheek. And it's like, why would I ever see that? <laughs> Why would I see his right groin? In what world am I to identify somebody by that? His penis hangs slightly to the left and has a star-shaped mole on the side. <laughs> right? It's like, how would you know? I don't, like, is he walking around Walmart like that? His cowboy hat and his boots. <laughs> and nothing else? Nothing else. I well, heard maybe... about that scar. <laughs> My God. Maybe he puts on a shirt and Borky picks it. <laughs> I'm thinking like Winnie the Pooh. Just like oh, yeah. little t-shirt belly hanging out. Yeah. Just walks around town like that in some cowboy boots. Howdy, partner. <laughs> How's it hanging today? <laughs> My God. All right, I quit. I'm done. <laughs> that is enough for today, folks. <laughs> We have a Winnie the Pooh murder suspect. Cowboy Winnie the Pooh. He's Cowboy Winnie the Pooh. I love this. I love this. <laughs> oh, anyhow. So he finally was brought in in July 1926. <laughs> okay. So things happen in my brain. Oh, God. And so Cowboy Winnie the Pooh walking around with a big scar on his groin and here comes Tigger, his friend. <laughs> and I'm just like, it, it just, it got ugly. There was lots of flopping happening. And that I'm is a sorry. lot of flopping. I, uh... <laughs> Your brain went to the weird place. <laughs> I just imagine a full-grown naked man with a tail just bouncing on it. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm done now. <laughs> what is wrong with my brain? It's still jumping. Okay, I'm gonna try it. All right. So here we have the next persons of interest. Really interesting. So it's two suspects 
of the police murders the day after the, the Bird Jaeger murders happen. So those murders of a, of a sheriff and another law enforcement officer in North Platte in Kansas. So these two are suspected of stealing a car at Grand Island Saturday night. The car was later found abandoned at Concordia, Kansas. That's about 136 miles. Hastings is between, with Grand Island being the closer of the two at 25 miles away. So you, you, you it only adds five miles with current routes to stop in Hastings. Well, and they know that it stopped in Hastings because that stolen car also had stolen license plates. Hastings license plates. Hastings plates, exactly. So they know for a fact that this car went through Hastings. Mm-hmm. Had to have, yes. So they know that, and they, they pick these guys up, and they are Pete Borgast, and uh, he's referred to alternately as Johnny Nukes, or Johnny Noikes, or Johnny Noakes. <laughs> I don't think that he should have a cool nickname. He should be Borgast. <laughs> Borgast. It, it sounds like a Polish dish made with beets. It does. And cabbage. It sounds like Jackson would like it. He loves his beets. Um, so they were found with two 38 revolvers on them. 38 was the caliber of bullets um, extracted from the victim's bodies here. And we had a 38 used uh, in our first murders. So they're getting to be pretty popular in these particular murders. So, uh, plus, um, there was some weird stuff in their car. Lots of weird stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, they were arrested in Sioux City. Uh, uh, at that point, a newspaper containing an account of the double murder in Hastings was found in their car. Uh, they also found a handkerchief with blood on it in the car when it was discovered abandoned in Concordia, Concordia and blood was found on the left side of the hood. Sheriff Condit, who with Sheriff Harm and Captain Carter examined the car at Grand Island Saturday afternoon, found well-defined fingerprints which may prove valuable in finding who stole the Grand Island car. As the case stands today, it has not been determined whether or not the men arrested at Sioux City stole the car at Grand Island, and the inquiry revolves around that question. In addition is the mystery of the identity of the two men who tried to pawn a suit for gasoline at Hastings Filling Stations. All that had been found out about them is that they were not the two men arrested at Sioux City. So there we have another two. Um, Lots of weird people showing up in, in and around Hastings. Yeah. Um, these two who were arrested in Sioux City, uh, they had ditched the Grand Island car in Concordia and then stole another car to go to Sioux City. So they're just on a tear. But they seem to slowly get whittled away as suspects. Um, See, I wouldn't whittle them away, though, because there was some other stuff in the car that was pretty questionable. What else was in the car? There was a rug, a five-gallon tin container that was empty but once used for oil, uh, a razor blade, and then you have the bloody handkerchief, and there's also a dark-colored rubber raincoat. Mm. Yeah, these guys are suspicious as hell. I wish I'd seen that list. Um... But I did. I do have plans to look into them further and see where I can follow up, like their future careers, just in case that gives us, if they were involved, any hint, anything that 
points to a pattern or something, you know? They just keep on getting arrested with 38s or something like that. Or they kill somebody else, you know? Like, who knows? But, so I am I am going to follow up on them. But yeah, the police are just like, it. they, they slowly stop showing up in the newspaper accounts about it. And they don't, they're not much for closure in some of these newspapers. They're really not. Because we don't find anything, you know, nothing comes of the fingerprints. Um... They're going to find a, the gun, or possibly the gun here, um, and nothing ever comes of forensics done on that. It's just really aggravating. Uh, I don't know if it's the police or the newspapers to blame. There does seem to be, um, we'll get to it, but some interdepartmental wrangling going on. Um, so there's a, there's a lot going on in this town that I don't think a lot of people know about. Um, there's, uh, the people who are just passing through town, uh, got some attention from the police. For example, sleepers. Sleepers at the city jail last night were given a thorough questioning at police headquarters this morning before they were released and told to hurry out of the city. This is in accordance with a plan adopted since Monday. Four men slept at the city jail last night and all were able to satisfy the police that they were not around Hastings Sunday night about the time of the double tragedy east of the city. So it seems like the police are offering those passing through town, um, you know, unhoused people, indigent. Um, back in that day, they would call them tramps. Um, so yeah. it does seem, or hobos. It does seem like basically their plan for, for dealing with that is offering them a free place to sleep for the night. In exchange for, you know, a little quick discussion so that we can roll you out as a suspect. Which was nicer than what they used to do prior to that, which was just arrest every vagrant in town. And, uh... Yeah, it's a, it's a softer, gentler way of, it is of a, doing a that. It is softer, gentler classism, yes. Yes, softer, gentler classism. Thank you, that was perfect. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I need that on his shirt. Um... So, and then they start to get a little bit more information about those men from the filling stations um, because their actions are so unusual that their identity is wanted. Well, yes. Um, so, yeah, let's talk about the filling station thing because it's kind of wacky. William Havens reported to the police that twice on the Sunday evening of the, the double murder, two young men came to his filling station on the corner of 3rd in Kansas and wanted to pawn a brown suit of clothes for $10 worth of gasoline. They said they had only 38 cents. They came first at 6.30 and were refused and returned at 7.45 and were refused again. Tom Beck, who was in charge of the National Oil Company station, corner of 2nd in Kansas, reported that two young men made a similar request there to pawn a suit and were refused. As they left, one of the young men was heard to say, we'll get $10 before we leave this town. They told William Havens they were on the way to Denver, but at the National Station, they made no statement as to where they were going. Um, as neither of the stations, at neither of the stations was the car the young men were driving seen. They came up without a car. Uh, so yeah, that's kind of a, a just a weird thing. <laughs> like people just walking around trying to change, exchange suits for gas. It's like wandering around being like, well, you trade me i mean trading was actually a little bit more acceptable there would be uh, like want ads in the paper for trade and it would be the weirdest thing 
It would be like two clarinets and a ukulele for, you know, a, 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 an apple tree. It's bizarre. <laughs> people I know, want I something. Wish we did it. Yeah, people want something very specific from the other person. And they're willing to offer something very specific in the hopes that somewhere out there is that person with an apple tree who needs two clarinets and a ukulele. Because hope springs eternal. <laughs> I, I still wish we did that though, because like mm-hmm. I feel like we could all get some really interesting shit. It's uh, I know in the artist community it's done a lot because um, I, this, the photographer that I used to work for, Steve, um, but I still do work for him sometimes. <laughs> he uh, he goes to shows and he'll bring home stuff on trade. Like he basically gives people his pictures and they give him something that he wants. So yeah. It's it's nice. I That's enjoy still the barter system. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. We all have stuff the other people want. So they pick up one guy for that, E.M. Stewart of Denver, interestingly. I mean, we. it is weird that Denver's popping up here in this manner. Uh, they toss him in jail for several days. Turned out, he said, he just run out of money on an automobile tour and was just trying to sell a suit for gas money. But it did just raise some eyebrows specifically because somebody was trying to sell a suit a brown suit, there was a brown suit stolen, I believe, in uh, one of the robberies, and at least one of the robberies, mm-hmm. probably more than one. So, but that guy pretty much just is, and it's funny because this is another thing the newspapers do. They don't, like I said, there's no follow-up. Remember, it was two guys who were trying to pawn this suit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the newspapers tell you that they pick up E.M. Stewart of Denver and then they never talk about it again. The second guy never never gets mentioned again. It's like as soon as something comes along to fill at least half of the blank in their head, they fill it all in. Yep. They're like, we're done with this. That's good. We're done. <laughs> Put it over there. Shut the door. and Move on. Then we have this really interesting trio of people. This um, was some shit here. Mr. and Mrs. Charles A. Parker and Albert Endley of Mattoon, Illinois. Did you read about them? No. This trio? Oh, boy. Are you in for it? Okay. They were picked up in a car near Hastings three days after the murder. And in addition to guns, they have some other weird shit in their car. Everybody was carrying weird shit in their car, but this is... Guns found in their possession were claimed to have been owned for a long time. Three guns found in the seat of the car were said to have been kept for self-protection. Four other guns and a rifle were merely carried because of their value, it was said. A gas mask carried in the car was said to have been found by them. Charles Parker said he thought it was a canteen. The gas mask was picked up at a campsite in Illinois, he said. Gas mask, canteen. Yes, I can see how they're interchangeable in mm-hmm. your mind, Charles Parker. You incomprehensible toilet seat. Same, same thing. <laughs> same thing. So uh, among the three, the articles were three 1925 automobile license plates. So there's an Illinois one, a Missouri one, and a small plate labeled Charleston 1095. Oh, sorry, there are two Missouri plates. (sighs) Um, A quantity of cheap jewelry was also found in the pocketbooks and small boxes. A complete check of all articles was made this morning by State Sheriff Condit and Captain Carter, and all items bearing a trademark or number were listed. Shirts, clothing, underwear, neckties, knives, mechanics tools, cigarettes, cigars, and an endless variety of items were listed. How do you know what's in my dresser? (laughs) Because of course. 
course you have mechanics tools in your dresser, Amber. I actually do. <laughs> I'm not surprised at all. <laughs> hey, you, you know what? I will say this. I have needle nose pliers in probably every room of my house. They are so handy. <laughs> they are handy. Yeah, agreed. I agree. So these three claim to be just passing through on their way across the country. Uh, they say that they're from Illinois. Hastings cops call the Illinois cops and the Illinois cops are like, we don't know those names, but we're looking for a couple of people that those people might just be. So this is back in Mattoon, Illinois. Um, and and uh, so two Coles County youths sought for robberies Sunday. This was on August 12th. Three youths are in the Coles County Jail in Charleston, and two more are being sought in connection with the robbery of six homes north of Mattoon Sunday morning. Coles County authorities later discovered most of the household goods taken by the robbers. The men in jail are Robert Barnes, George Knapp, and Joseph Toots. <laughs> that is just... That a, is fantastic. That was so fun to say. Joseph Toots. <laughs> All of Charleston. The men sought are Albert Edmund and Clarence Atkins, both of Charleston who are still of, at liberty. So these two gentlemen, Charles Parker and Albert Endley, and, and yeah, <laughs> it's, I can't keep straight the different names. Albert Endley might actually be Clarence, funny enough, Atkins and Albert Edmund. So there's that Charleston connection. They're from Charleston. A Charleston license plate was found in their car. So there's that. Um, that was on August 12th that the burglary happened. That's just four days before the home burglaries in Hastings started in earnest. Um, the only burglaries prior to that was the, like, there was one at the beginning of the month of the, the dentist offices. Yeah. So, um, and two weeks before the murders. That, to me, the timing yeah. is a little ridiculous. Well, and the M.O. is different between the dentist's office and the homes. Yeah, I, I kind of count that the dentist's office as a big maybe. It's it's such an outlier. It's, and it's I'm kind of wondering if it wasn't just, like, breaking in and using the laughing gas. They said there were no drugs missing. But how would you know with laughing gas? I don't know. There's got to be some way to measure it. Well, there was probably no pills missing, but if they had a large container, a couple of kids could have broken in through the window, huffed some, and then <laughs> gone on their way quite giddy. Well, remember that the professionalness of the thieves was remarked upon because they closed and latched all the doors and windows that they used. If you do some laughing gas, you're probably not going to leave things nice and pretty behind you. You're probably you just going to go giggle down the street. Dad is a dentist. <laughs> Amber thinks she's solved the mystery of the dental burglary. I bet one of those dentists had a teenager, and him and his buddies were like, let's break in and do this. And they did it, and it was a hoot. And so they did it again at a different office. Nancy Drew's spiritual descendant right here. <laughs> that's Amber. I would have done it as a teenager. That's really what I'm going off of. <laughs> if I knew that there was something at my dad's office that I could get high on or have fun with, I, I would do it. <laughs> and 
And especially when you know that there's no security system, but you also know that your dad will be pissed if you break anything. Well, it was two different dental offices. So maybe the dentist kids were like best friends and got up to all kinds of shenanigans together. Totally possible. It's a smaller <laughs> town. Yeah. You're bonding over dental work. My dad's a dentist. It sucks. <laughs> um, so yeah, that... Um, doesn't really go anywhere again, although I'm going to be, those are another group I'm going to be chasing through the newspapers through mm. the decades pretty soon here. Um, there's a list. There's a list of searches I must do and research I must perform. But it just, it strikes me as so weird that this trio um, was there. Possibly. They have all this stuff in their car the only thing that dissuades me from that is it's never mentioned again. And if the cops checked the stuff, they would probably be able to trace it to some of the local burglaries. Bring in the people who were burglarized and have them look at things and say, that's mine, that's mine, that's mine. And, you know, if they yeah. need to prove it, whatever. Or, you know, match it up to a description of things that were taken from the homes. Anything, really. It just says they're going to, like, take all down all these details about all these items, but then nothing is ever done with that. Again, no follow-up. Um... I mean, maybe something was done. Maybe they checked it all out and none of those goods could be matched to anybody here. So maybe I'll find them arrested in Illinois because they, all that stuff was from Illinois. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I don't know. I can't track down every tiny uh, person of interest. Sometimes I have to save my energy. But these three I will be tracking down just to make sure, just to, just to write them off completely. So then there is, of course, the question, could it be the work of a woman? One of those beings with uterus? I don't think anyone thinks it's 100% a woman. But I think a lot of people are like, could be like a couple. Well, here is the thought process of the investigators. Some officers who have worked faithfully on the case believe they see the hand of a woman in the crime. During the investigation, a woman of wide experience was asked the hypothetical question. If you were to murder a man and a woman... Would you deal more ferociously with one than the other? A woman in such a case would deal more ferociously with a woman, was the answer. So this is their entire basis. Um, because Clarence was shot once and Hazel was shot twice. And there was the disarrangement of Hazel's clothing. Which may have also happened when the bodies were being stuffed into the car. Yeah. It's, it's a really strange thing to say. They're just asking somebody who they think's... They, they, they think has this wide experience, a woman of wide experience, which, by the way, is going on my tombstone. Um, Christy Baxter, a woman of wide experience. And uh, tombstone and business card. So, but I just, th this is how we're solving mysteries. This is how we're solving crime. Murders? Murders now. We're just picking a random woman off the street, asking if she has wide experience, which I think means she's a murderous slut. I'm pretty sure. Wide experience <laughs> certainly seems like she puts out... Um, she definitely, according to them, puts out and, yeah. And she's also wrong. So, I, just hypothetically speaking, crime tips, remember. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, you want to kill the man first. Yeah. They're physically stronger. You want to kill the man first, 100% of the time. And it doesn't really matter how ferocious you are, because if you don't know them, I don't really think that you're going to be all that ferocious with either one over the other, unless you have some sort of personal beef. Well, that's the deal. That's kind of what they're saying. If it's a woman, of course, it has to be emotional, you know. 
Um, because we're just made of emotions. Well, maybe we so. just really like to see blood. Yeah. And, um, well, well, that's what they're saying is that she would know them or at least him. It would be a jealousy case where that was the motive. She killed them because she was well, jealous that he was with Well, I'm, I'm going to go ahead and, and rule that or, out. And this is why. Do you know how hard it is to move a dead body? It's very hard. Because it's literally quite, a dead weight. Exactly. <laughs> and so if you kill p- two people outside of the car, to drag them, pick them up, and put them back into the car, there's going to be very clear signs on the ground that you had to drag them because you could not pick them up and carry them. That is true, too. Good point. Good point. Yeah. Crime tips with Amber. I'm just saying it was it was not a woman unless this woman was like a bodybuilder because it is very difficult to move a dead body, let alone two. Okay, well, the only other thought that I had was why do we go so heteronormative? Why couldn't have been a woman who had a thing for Hazel and was jealous of Clarence? That's the only that's the only other like like thing that popped into my head as far as the whole the woman theory. Like it doesn't yeah. have to be that she loved, you know, maybe she had a, Hazel was known as a pretty woman. She was yeah. well liked, she was popular, the dudes loved her. Well, on on the same kind of token with jealousy, what if it was a gay man? Yeah, there you go. And he has been stuffed in the closet because at the time that was not okay. And he's mad as hell. And so, I mean, think think of the descriptions that we've had in these past cases. A higher pitched voice, really awkward. If you are stuffed so deep in the closet that you don't know what to do. And there was one that maybe dressed like a woman. There's no sexual assault. It does seem like the women are getting the more raw end of the stick. So jealousy that they can actually get what that person wants. Why not a gay man? Another possibility. I think what we're seeing here is that when you decide to close yourself off to these possibilities because you will only allow yourself to see the world in one very specific way and you stereotype people like women can't kill so that you don't even think about it possibly being a woman for like a month. Like, I don't know. Women can absolutely. No, kill. what I'm saying is that you close yourself off to possible answers. Yeah, I, I think that women are more more mental in in their killing with poisons. We're very popular for poisons. Well, we also making have things... to be more subtle. Like, it's... well, and so we're smarter though too. And <laughs> so making things look like accidents, um, a fall down the stairs, or the brake line suddenly stopped working. Because your mechanic husband fixed them himself. <laughs> like, there's so many things. And women are so much more mental. Like, we play a mental game when it comes to murder. Men, brute force. The way that you say that, we play a mental game when it comes to murder, just really should be terrifying for anybody who gets on your bad side. <laughs> Because well, they should be scared. Yes, they should be scared. But it just it feels to me. I'm like, I'm like, how many? How many has she murdered? <laughs> You'll never know. I'll never know. Yeah. Well, yes, I will. So, they say that the disarrangement of Hazel's clothing was said to be a quote planned indignity. Yeah, I feel like all of the disarrangements in all of these cases, like there was actually no like assault. And it's really almost like staging the crime scene. I think in the first one, we do get told that it, it was, there was a quote-unquote criminal assault. There was a rape. In the first one? In the first one. Wait, wait, wait. No, it also happened in um, where we had a survivor. 
Because I'm, I'm mixing things up in my head. I was like, was that a tiny? Because we did tinies too. Yeah, we are not used to doing cases like this. That are all tied together. All tied together for an extended period of time. We're used to doing a case and then mostly putting it out of our minds. All the stories will stay with me to an extent. But the details... The details get hazy. The details get really hazy. So we're just mentally used to just shutting the door and locking it as soon as we're done with the case. And we haven't been able to do that. And now they're starting to get all mixed up in our brains. Yeah. Well, so in fairness, I'm a mixed up human. And uh, I had a week that I thought four days were Monday. <laughs> and I did over and over. I just thought well, I was like Groundhog's Day. <laughs> Every day was Monday. I don't know. Um, so I don't... I'm just saying, it could have been a woman. I have trouble believing it was a woman alone. I agree with that to an extent. And mostly just because I, moving I, the body. Yeah, I still think it's a possibility. Um, Unless she brought, like, a fucking cart with her. Yeah. God. <laughs> just props them up and wheels them back to the car. Which, you know what? Again, women play a mental game. Maybe she came prepared. She stole it last year from moving day at the dorms. Yep. <laughs> Chuck them in the cart. Wheel it right there. But then you would have seen the wheel for tracks. But that's whatever. <laughs> she had a pulley system. We are coming up with the most bizarre possibilities we can think of. And you know what? Did you see the thing about the, the missing keys? And I think we touched on it last time. Yeah. I never saw another thing about those keys. And I feel like that could have been a really good clue. So um, there were four keys, I believe... Yeah, four keys were taken from Jaeger and just disappeared. And one of them was like a post office key, a plane key number, a Vassar key. And I want to know what happened to yeah. those. Because if it was like a burglary, they would have gone and used the keys to get whatever the heck was in there. Yeah. And nothing ever again did I hear about the keys. I'm just assuming that they got, like, lost in the cornfields. Like, that's just, it's just... It could have been, or they actually could have been stolen. Because remember, his pocket is also missing. The whole pocket. The whole pocket. And the pocket's never found. Uh, and we'll get into that a little bit when we talk more about the uh, the, the forensics and everything and the evidence. Um, but I just... I think my my best guess is keys were in the pocket. Pocket somehow got ripped off and thrown. I don't know. The whole damn pocket. Yeah. And they, they they never found the pocket. They never found the keys. Just cornfield ate it up. Cornfield ate it. So um, that's my guess there. But yeah, the, the, the keys never got brought up again. And that was another like lack of follow-up. Again, I don't, I'm not necessarily blaming the newspaper. I'm not necessarily blaming the police. It could have been one, both, or either. Uh, it could be a case of the police just not being cooperative with with giving the journalists information, and they they are sort of the gatekeepers of that, especially in the days prior to you know FOIAs being a yeah. thing. Um, so there is that, or it could be lazy journalists. You know, maybe they're just not asking the questions, or maybe they're just not including pertinent information that they need to include, just because they think that they don't need to tie off any of these loose ends for us, their readers, one hundred years in the future. Yeah. <laughs> and readers and critics 100 years in the future. So these murders are now um, tied. An explicit connection is made between the murders in Hastings and those in Indiana, Illinois, and Colorado about a month after the murders. But it's only when Detective Kavanaugh, who investigated the Indiana ones and showed up in subsequent murders as well, comes to town. 
So he is a proponent of the uh, criminal degenerate theory. And he says that's because all the murders were committed with 38 caliber revolvers. Um, I'm okay. Let's, let's stick with that for a second. All the murders were committed with 38 caliber revolvers. I know at least one case, I believe Denver, we did not ever get the caliber. Yeah, but it, I we're mean, if Kavanaugh caliber. was there and he's saying it was all 38 If he's caliber. saying it was 38, that, that's the only information I've had so far confirming that, but it's a pretty good source. Um, I kind of can't ignore that. So I'm going to consider that question mostly answered affirmatively. Uh, he also noted the commonality of the bodies of the three women who had their, their clothing disturbed. And they say, quote, in the first three murders, Kavanaugh had the belief the murderer was a degenerate. This was strengthened by reports of thefts from useless thefts, thefts of useless articles from farmhouses in the vicinity of Hastings. So he's, you know, basically the, the, the robberies, the burglaries are another, uh, you know, positive indicator. But we also get, this is wonderful, a new phrasing for serial killer. They're trying. They don't have a word for it yet. They don't have a phrase for it. They, they don't know what exactly to call it. Um, so they're, they're, they're trying some things out. And so they try out super killer. Uh, that sounds like um, <laughs> they've got powers. Yes, it does, doesn't it? The super killer. <laughs> sounds like he should have a cape. But that would be problematic because I'm sure that would get really bloody, you know? Like always waving in the wind, and then all of a sudden the wind whips it around and like it like lands on the murder victim and soaks up the blood. You know, you just a cape is not practical murder. I, I really I don't like it for a murderer. I do like it for like a weed killer. Yes, yes, that could work. Yeah, yeah. super killer, super killer. So yes, that cracks me up. And now, of course, with Kavanaugh involved, with the connection made between these and other murders. We're now looking for the same person that we were looking for before, and that is, of course, the Dane or Dutch. He's now described as between 35 and 40, 5 foot 9 to 10 inches, a native of Denmark, of course. I guess we finally decided on Denmark, and maybe riding a nearly new Columbia bicycle. That specificity. That's very specific. It's yeah. very specific. It feels like they are referring to something. Maybe there was a, a robbery where a bicycle was taken that we don't know about. Because I hadn't seen anything, but I didn't look for bicycle robberies yet. Yeah, yeah, I didn't dig into those either. But they like to really <laughs> lean on those. They do, yeah. So then there's the Omaha Sniper, who is, uh, I'm not gonna get too deep in the woods weeds here with him because I uh, this is a completely different MO here. But here's what he did, his name was Frank Carter. He stalked and murdered victims with the intent to rob them. And how he would do this is he would shoot them in their homes as they stood in the windows at night. So in February 1926, he murdered a mechanic, then a doctor, then a railroad detective. Uh, then he also did some terrorizing during the day. He uh, shot one person in the face and fired through windows and basically left Omaha at a complete standstill. Finally, two weeks in, he was caught, he was tried, uh, he was found guilty, and in June 1927, he was executed in the electric chair with the reported last words, let the juice flow. Those are pretty cool last words. If only he'd said, let the milk flow, we'd have known we caught the Dane. Good old Dutch and his milk. 
Can I have a glass of milk before you execute me? <laughs> yes. All right, so let's talk forensics. Or do you have any other persons of interest that I skipped over? Nope. Okay. I thought I got everybody, but I wasn't sure. So a little bit about forensics here. A few days into the investigation, I guess there's a question as to whether Hazel was shot twice or more than twice. The sheriff is oddly cagey about it, and you can't even really for sure figure out if there was an autopsy. County attorney stated that no autopsy was made last night in connection with the removal of the bullet from Mrs. Bird. Previously, an x-ray photograph had been made of the skull. The first examinations were understood to have revealed that Mrs. Bird was shot twice, but the county attorney today declined to either affirm or deny that later examinations have revealed that she was shot more than twice. So it feels like they only did an x-ray of her head thus far. Um, and they didn't actually do an autopsy. That is really strange. And I know now you have to do an autopsy for any sort of suspicious... Two bullets to the head is pretty goddamn suspicious. Let's examine that. Let's look at the bullets. They do eventually, I know, get the bullets out, but it's just very strange. Um, So now there was, if you recall, this was a smaller detail, but there was a crimson puddle behind the car a little ways when the murder scene was first discovered. And they thought it was blood. They had to go through all of these like mental gymnastics trying to figure out where Hazel was, where the killer was, based on this blood. And then they find out, once they have it analyzed, that it is not blood. No idea what a crimson puddle was... That, that is strange as hell. Uh... The only thing I can think of is that maybe their tests were wrong and it is blood. No. There is a fluid in vehicles that is red. Oh, well... Yeah, that would make sense, of course. And I know this because I was going on vacation one year and I made it to the turnpike and some hose popped and my whole engine had this red fluid underneath. Oh, gosh. Okay. All right. As the car was billowing smoke. (laughs) Um, So this is how I know that there was a red fluid. And I imagine in the 20s, it was probably even maybe deeper colored than that. Yeah. Because. Maybe thicker. Could, viscosity. Yeah, so it could have been like some sort of vehicle fluid. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, yeah. I don't know why that wouldn't occur to them. <laughs> why, why does it occur to us? But then when there's mechanics every 10 feet, when you can't spit without hitting a mechanic, and you know nobody thinks vehicle fluid? Yeah, and I, I don't remember. Oh, I wish I, I, I'm not a mechanic. I do not remember what fluid it was. It was important to the operation of the vehicle. I recall that much. Okay. Well, we know there was fluid. So uh, then, of course, there is the infamous pocket, the left pocket of Clarence Yeager's trousers. They asked farmers to keep an eye out. The state sheriff thinks that there's a possibility that the pocket might have been, quote, and this is how I know we're living in a completely different world, temporarily removed for repairs. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But Clarence's father says the trousers were new. Transmission fluid. Oh, okay. Transmission fluid. Okay. All right. Interesting. (laughs) Yeah. We also find out that Clarence had $4.40 on him um, that was taken, or at least is not found at the murder scene. But Probably in the pocket. Exactly. With the pocket missing, it's Schrodinger's money. It's Schrodinger's keys. Yeah. You know, like, they're, they're both there and not there. We don't know because we know, like, those are things that you you put in a pocket. Keys and wallet or money. 
Yeah, those are things found in a pocket. So when we're missing the pocket, we can't say whether those things were taken or are just missing from the scene. So uh, they're also continuing to look for the gun used. And it's not until close to Thanksgiving that two boys out hunting find a 38 caliber gun near the murder scene. This too, okay, there's a couple of things about this that really make me certain that this case is connected to the first one. And there's a lot of similarities that we've talked about so far. And here's another one. The gun was, if this is the gun, was dropped at the scene. Makes sense. Happened in the first one. Although in that case, it was left there to maybe, maybe stage it as a double suicide or a murder suicide. A suicide pact, you know, something along those lines. So there is that, but that could be also the murderer learning from that experience that there's no, you know, why bother trying to make it look like a suicide? Nobody ever thinks it is. So, uh, you know, I'll just ditch the gun in the field. Doesn't take the gun, but just as a habit, like for some reason, whether it's a mental block, whether it's some sort of weird principle, whether it's superstition, just doesn't take the gun with him. What are you looking at? Me? Yes. Transmission fluid was not used in 1920s vehicles. It was not invented until the 40s. I knew it had to be some question. I'm like, which of the questions? <laughs> are we still on transmission fluid or is it something else now? <laughs> that is interesting. I was, I was wondering that. I was wondering if it was used back then. There's so many aspects of doing historical true crime that you have to like reframe your brain almost to constantly question is the reality of now the same as the reality that was then? Yeah, because in my head, I was like, yeah, transmission fluid. And then I'm like, wait, in the 1920s, cars were different. Yeah. So you're constantly going, did they have that? Did they think that? You know, <laughs> you're constantly trying to be aware of that stuff. Uh, so there, the three shots, three shells were, were fired from the gun and two remained in the gun. And the description of the gun really sounds familiar. Uh, listen to this. Oh boy. The revolver was badly rusted on the inside, around the trigger guard, and other places. The nickeled barrel was as bright as when new. It's half old and half new. Hmm. The weapon was turned over to Sheriff Harm, and Mr. Harm says it may be possible to trace its ownership as the factory numbers plainly visible. It is a product of the Ivor Johnson Arms Company of Fitchburg, Massachusetts, Sheriff Harm wired the fa factory to learn the first chapter of the history of the fatal gun, and if the firearms dealers have kept the proper record, it may be easily traced. So, the gun in the Fort Wayne murder also seemed to be kind of cobbled together. Part two different guns, almost, that had been placed together to make one. It seems like a weird hobby. It's a strange hobby, no, no doubt about that. But there's there's too many similarities. They're starting to pile up here. Again, that's if the gun is, spoiler alert, they never tell you. Nope, they forget to follow up. Now, for some reason, the fact that the gun was, was like, tossed and, and ditched in the cornfield, I don't know how close it was found to the actual murder scene. They never specify... They specify where it was, but only if you lived in 1925 would that be useful because it's a lot of descriptions of places that aren't there anymore. Um, and so I can't find that, so I can't figure out how close it was. 
And so, but just the fact that it was ditched somewhat near the scene seems to give the newspapers the idea that this must be a jealousy or revenge or hatred type of murder and not the robbery type of murder. It's strange. They, yeah. they immediately were like, oh, well, and this is, again, a, a weird theory. The murderer must have gone back to Hastings and then realized it wasn't safe to keep the gun on them and returned to the scene to ditch the gun nearby? That doesn't track. No, it does not track. It is very silly. I don't think that indicates anything about the motive whatsoever. It's just somebody ditching a gun. So it's a strange thing. So then all is quiet on the gun front until March, when it's reported that the state sheriff, uh, remember Sheriff Condit, is criticizing the Adams County Sheriff for delaying sending the gun to New York City for examination and to compare the, with the bullets taken from the bodies, which we now have. There's some sort of power struggle going on. The state sheriff says the county sheriff won't give him the gun, but also won't say he's not going to give him the gun. And it's a whole bunch of bullshit. Um, for the record, the state sheriff is also certain that a man found dead on a train in Omaha six years prior was the Velisca Axe murderer and wanted the Velisca authorities to exhume the bodies so they could get fingerprints from dead bodies, mind you. Uh, that have been to the ground for six years. Yes. And well, it might have been at the time, but they were still, the murders were still old at that time. Um, and compare it to the dead train man. So uh, I don't I don't know. They were a little wacky. Uh, and finally, a week after all that hubbub, uh, Sheriff Harm, the county sheriff, sends the gun to State Sheriff Condit, saying simply he kept the gun because he was sure it belonged to someone he had been looking for for a long time. And he thought the gun might finally help him find that person. Vague. Strange, too, because he says someone he'd been looking for for a long time. If he meant the murderer of Clarence and Hazel, why wouldn't he just say the mur the Lover's Lane murderer or whatever? Why wouldn't he just say that? I'm, I'm looking for the, you know, I think it belonged to the person who committed the murders. Because that's not who he was referring to. Yeah, it's something from before that. So, so maybe he had some case from before that that had a hobbled together gun. Maybe, maybe, yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So, but he is um, mad uh, about this, uh, but he's, don't tell the newspapers I was mad. He says, uh, Condit isn't even the state sheriff. There's no such thing as the state sheriff. Condit's only an agent appointed by the governor. He's not my superior officer. We will cooperate with the state, but we do not owe them allegiance and nothing in the law requires me to turn over evidence I've gathered. <laughs> they are being so bitchy. They really are. This has turned into, like, the high school girls' locker room. And up next is hair pulling and uh, name calling. You know, homecoming queen isn't even real, Aurora. It's not even real. It's fake. It's not even a thing. You're just, like, appointed by a bunch of people who voted for you. That's not even real. You are not royalty. And that yeah. dress makes your ass look so fat. Just because I said I'd be your friend does not mean... That I need to, um, oh no, I lost the plot. Yeah, you, you were <laughs> so away. bad at being the mean girl. <laughs> I am terrible at it. It does not come naturally. So <laughs> then the gun, along with two others that are mentioned in the paper but never explained. Yep. 
What is happening? Oh, Hastings, your newspaper. The gun is the third to have been found in connection with the case. All three of the guns, in addition to the two bullets removed from the bodies of the slain couple, will be sent to the Bureau at New York City in an effort to learn whether the bullets were fired from one of the three guns. Like, never before were the other two mentioned. I didn't see anything about them, did you? I I do. Oh, you do have something. Okay, so it's just me being stupid. That's all right. No, no, it was barely mentioned. Okay. So, um, there's... I have... The gun received today was a 38 caliber Ivor Johnson. A 38 caliber Colt taken from Peter Burgett and John Noakes. Two men arrested in Sioux City. Yeah, whose names are never the same. So that's going to be really fun to They're to never research. ever the same. Yeah. These are completely different names now. That's going to be excellent. And then a 38 caliber Harrington and Richards taken from a party at Hastings after rumors had connected them with the case. But that's all it says. So taken from a party after rumors, taken from the two guys with the stolen car, and then this gun. That's right. Okay. Love rumors. I love rumors, too. Yeah, that's funny. <laughs> so, yeah, they, they do send it, like you said, to the Bureau of Forensic Ballistics in New York City, and then we never hear of it again. You didn't have any follow-up that you found of it, did you? Nope. Nope. All right, so let's... Uh, do you have any other forensic stuff I skipped over or missed? <laughs> I don't skip over things, I should say. I should clarify. I miss things. <laughs> there is no information that I pick up to that I do not convey to you, the listener. But if I didn't pick it up, I can't give it to you. No, so I have I have the guns, I have the fingerprints on the stolen vehicle. Which is never followed up on. Never followed up on. The handkerchief, I did have one article that said, oh, we need to determine if it's blood or not, even though other articles said it was clearly blood. Uh, and then that was never followed up on. Yeah, I think this case was just really, really botched. Just incredibly botched. Probably a combination of all the other shit going on in the state. The fact that the Midwest at this point in time is just a freaking crime factory. Oh my god. It is, if you look for robberies and such... There's just a billions, billions of them. They're robbing banks. They're robbing dentist office. We don't know if they're robbing mortuaries. Livingston Brothers kind of implied that somebody had stolen their razors or their, their cutting knives. I don't know. Um, they're, they're also really high all the time. That is so. true, too. So, yes. Um, all right. So let's talk about theories. Uh, the newspaper says... The canvas of motives made by the officers includes robbery, jealousy, and revenge. So you notice a suicide pact is not in there. Murder-suicide is not in there. Not a chance based on the position of the bodies. So uh, so let's talk about jealousy. Uh, it was pointed out that Mrs. Bird was a woman of more than ordinary attraction, both in disposition and appearance. She inspired strong affection, upon which jealousy could be based. Well, I'm so glad the newspapers have figured out human emotion. God damn. Uh, all investigation keeps in mind that jealousy might be the motive. So there is, of course, that idea. It always comes up in the, the Lover's Lane cases. And in that case that I talked to you about, the, the new one that I found, that might have been the actual motive there if they did, in fact, get the right guy. So uh, then robbery. Let's talk about robbery. Uh, the killer 
didn't seem to take items of value that the, the thief or thieves who'd done all the housebreaking had done. Left rings, left watches. Clarence's ring was a Masonic ring. Ooh. His father was a 32nd degree Mason. And then, of course, diamond ring, like we said, on Hazel's hand. And uh, left watches as well. Watches were, were pretty valuable. You could pawn those pretty easily back then, I'm sure. Yeah. And so there was also the idea that, of course, robbery to cover up another motive. Or just robbery as just incidental to the murder. You know, $4.40 falls out of Clarence's pocket. And then the pocket, for some reason, rips itself off the pants and flutters away. And the murderer's like, well, well, I'm here. You know, could use a little gas money. And I don't want to have to pawn a suit. <laughs> uh, so incidental robbery. And uh, then there's mistaken ID uh, and revenge. Mistaken ID we kind of covered with Star Spankenberger. Um, my favorite person ever now because he just has the funnest name. Stars. I, I, I feel like I need to sing it. I'll save it for um, for patron welcoming. So I'll add him to the patrons. <laughs> so, um, yeah, they say uh, re revenge. There's not really any. They don't go to the extent that other papers say to say like, oh, they were the most respected people ever. But they say that they were respectable, didn't really have enemies. But I don't know if you can say that about somebody with an ex-husband who's moving on in her love life. I don't think you can ever say that that woman doesn't have an enemy. True. Or somebody willing to hurt them. If Lifetime movies have taught us anything, it is in fact that if I can't have you, nobody can have you. Yes, or if you are a single mother executive in a big city and you come back for Christmas in your hometown, you'll meet and fall in love and want to have a small town life. That's Hallmark. Oh, same difference. <laughs> yeah, Isn't same difference. Same? Probably. It's probably all the same people. So, uh, and I that, thought they had the same movies. I don't, I don't watch TV, guys. I'm sorry. I don't watch either Hallmark or Lifetime anymore, so I have no idea either. But um, I don't really watch channels. Although I did discover when I was in a hotel that I missed that. I missed channels. I missed channel surfing and not knowing what you were going to get. Instead of having to actively choose things. <laughs> like, I think you're right, though. Like, I'm looking back at my, my, like, childhood. You know, like, when you would stay home from school and your mom would watch whatever she wanted and you were stuck watching it? I, like, vividly remember movies on Lifetime. That's what she watched. Mm -hmm. I think this might be before Hallmark existed as a channel, or at least I knew that it existed. And I remember, like, the the guy from 90210 playing, like, the, the villain, if you can't have me, nobody can. Literally saw that movie on reruns in, like, the <laughs> mid-2000s. I turned to Jackson, and I said, I got 10 bucks that says he's going to drop a, if I can't have you, nobody can. And sure enough, so another idea floated locally among people was drugs. Maybe this was all a case of, you know, somebody got a little addled on the embalming fluid. Yeah, but why go after them? Did they have drugs? The idea, um, okay, so here's what uh, a Hastings physician said. In almost any mysterious case of murder, the user of narcotics is always a possibility as a suspect. The user of narcotics will do anything in the world to secure the means for procuring his drugs. So basically, we're just including this as another scare tactic. You know, don't do drugs, kids. You might murder people you for their pocket. Murder people for their pocket. Pocket murder. 
So the idea of this to them, much like a robbery motive, makes the investigation a bit more uphill because it doesn't necessarily mean it. You know, you don't have that attachment to the victims or that in, in a lot of cases. You know, if it's somebody who killed because they were just so desperate to get their embalming fluid fixed, then it, they're, they're going to kill, to them, randoms. Yeah. So uh, this suggestion, like the suggestion of robbery, throws the scope of the inquiry farther afield. If robbery was the motive of the double murder, then it might have been committed by any passing robber who did not use any selection of persons, but made his attack upon any victims he chanced to meet and then passed on. They explain everything sometimes. Like, they're aliens new to Earth, and they don't know if you've figured this out yet. Yeah. It's like when I... It's like when I had a student that explained what a rotary phone was in, in a report in great detail. It was a full paragraph. Um, so uh, if anyone is thinking about money, the classic, uh, life insurance specifically, Clarence had 7,500 insurance. Hazel had 1,000. That is just what was publicized. Both of those went to their children, their children's guardians. And of course, madness is always an option. Uh, we have this wonderful little subhead in the newspaper looking for halfwit. Yeah. The degenerate and the moron is always a possibility in this case, and this type of criminal has been kept in mind throughout. Sheriff Harm is trying to locate a halfwit of whom he was advised by Sheriff Ryder at Nebraska, Nebraska City. This man stole a 38 caliber revolver and was heard to say he intended to try and collect some money near Hastings. The man, Sheriff Hartnell said, was in Bushnell and Kimball a few days after the murder here. He was walking without hat or coat and was headed for Colorado. Coat? Could he have left a coat at the murder scene? A coat that he stole from another house nearby? Mayhaps. <laughs> and it is summer. You can definitely walk without a coat. Um, so, although it ne wouldn't necessarily be the norm back then, I don't think. I think you'd still have a light jacket on or something if you're outside. Um, Especially in, like, uh, the morning, you know. But anyhow, so, yeah, they're like, there's this guy. We're not going to give you his name. Uh, if there's a description of him, hmm, we're not giving it. And they also managed to use as many synonyms as possible for, um, you know, maybe somebody with intellectual disabilities. <laughs> so it's, it's really fun. Or mental illness or something. So, uh, and they connect madness specifically with the Denver slang, which is interesting to me. But uh, the murder resembled in many respects the maniacal shooting of four persons in an automobile on the open highway near Denver recently, in which two women and a man were killed outright, and another man was seriously wounded. No indication as to what theories police would follow were given out, but it was considered likely they may work on the theory the same maniac has been following his ruthless and blood-stained path through Nebraska should no other murder clue develop. Uh, so then, you know, they, they do connect it to the other murders and some, uh, you know, the some that we hadn't even heard of yet, so that's helpful. Um, the state sheriff is on the criminal degenerate. That That's his, uh, that's his ship. <laughs> criminal degenerate. Uh, he says, so far it looks like a, quote, purposeless slang. Um... And then we get a fortune teller in the mix. Did you of see the fortune course. teller? I did not. I can't <laughs> wait. Word has been brought to Sheriff Harm that an itinerant fortune teller at Holstein says he can name the murderer under certain conditions. Oh, 
The conditions are, first, the sheriff must believe in the power of the fortune teller. Second, the communication must be made to the sheriff alone and in the dark. <laughs> uh, this is beautiful. That's the best thing I've ever seen. Um, so all these theories really came to naught. Uh, the Masonic bodies in Hastings offered a $500 reward for capture and conviction of the murderer. The state added $400 onto that, and the county threw on $1,000. Total today received as compensation, that would be $135,000. And that reward was never claimed because the murderer or murderers were never found. Um, and honestly, like, I, this is connected to at least one of the other murders. That's my theory so far. Yeah. This is connected to at least one of the other murders, almost definitely Fort Wayne, possibly Illinois. That does not necessarily mean the same person committed all three murders. Same person could have committed two murders or, you know, like there, there's a whole bunch of combinations here that are possible. Um, but here it's just, you know... Everything they do keeps on pushing it aside. This really feels like a roaming, traveling serial killer. It really does. Traveling across the Midwest, shooting couples. Could be. We, we've had roaming serial killers before. It's not unheard of. It's, it's not unheard of at all. It's harder to get caught when you stay on the move. Yeah, absolutely. And back then, with the, the trains and everything, you could hop a freight. You could hop his freight. <laughs> so, yeah, that's... Uh, there's there's some aspects of this that I, many, many aspects of this case where I feel like the lid's not closed tight enough to put those boxes away. Yeah. Um, even Lawrence Bird. Um, it seems like alibis are too convenient and are kind of like shifting stories. And it's it just, it, it, it's hard. This is a hard case because it is, I don't know, possibly the most... The biggest lack of closure we've had so far. It just feels like all these avenues we've run down and then they just end. Yeah. No, nothing at all. So, um, and the fact that she was afraid of Lawrence Bird, that doesn't mean that he killed her, but it's uh, not promising if you've ever watched Dateline. So. Well, and I find it really interesting that, because um, remember she had a two-year-old son mm -hmm. at, at this time. He didn't, Go to his dad. No, he ended up going to the grandparents, but Lawrence Bird did fight for him a little bit. He fought for him some. Um, there was a custody battle between the the grand the harder grandparents, uh, Hazel's parents, and uh, Lawrence Bird. And then eventually, in 1927, he was found unable to support the child, and the courts also cited his lack of a regular home. Um, and I really don't think I, I definitely see the the grandparents raised him. He even. When he was an adult and his grandmother was aging, he built an addition onto his house where she could live. I yeah. mean, this is this kid grew up to be a, a, a seems like a really great person. Um, yeah, he. Uh, I don't think that they had much contact because in Lawrence's obituary in 1969, when he dies in Idaho at age 73, Bobby isn't mentioned. No children are mentioned. Um, but when looking through the years where he settled down um, in Idaho and in, uh, also in Iowa, I found um, he, he did remarry in 1930. 
uh, and I, I did find a Mrs. Lawrence bird who had um, children several times. But if that's the case, the children must have died, but that was never in the papers. So I don't know what happened there, but um, it could have been a, a different Mrs. Lawrence bird in the same town. It happens. But um, so, yeah, uh, Lawrence had remarried and then he had been a uh, deputy sheriff. Which is weird. Oh, so weird. They uh, let anyone be sheriff right? back then. A sugar factory foreman and an orchard manager. Well, I'm sure somebody told them that his job isn't even real. <laughs> You're not even real, Lawrence. You are an incomprehensible twist. So Bobby uh, lived with his grandparents. They raised him. He served in World War II. He got his degree. He married. Then he got his master's degree in mathematics. He worked at Boeing, uh, had four sons, and then a fantastic-sounding retirement with his wife. Bobby was a huge rock hound. He made clocks and jewelry. And so they went around in their fifth-wheeled trailer to uh, rock and craft shows to buy and sell. Yeah, he made bolo ties. I love that. People were encouraged to wear bolo ties uh, that he had made to his, uh, his services. So I really appreciated that. He lived to age 93. Spent 68 of those years married to the same woman, Which too. is beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. Uh, when he passed, he had three surviving sons. A whole bunch of grands and great-grands running around. And uh, so, yeah, it's it's what this story really needed after that complete lack of closure is so much more closure on somebody related to the victim than we've ever gotten before. Yeah, well... So I never found out about their hobbies. <laughs> even even Hazel's parents though had uh, a, a bit of so her dad did I don't know if you saw that bit I did see a bit about her dad yeah go ahead <laughs> so uh, her dad died what like three years I think it was well uh, yeah no I think it was a little bit longer than that I think it was thirty one or thirty three it was one of the two <laughs> did I not hold on hold on. I have it somewhere. I know I do. So, Jesse Fremont Harder died in 1928. Oh, okay. You were right. All right. Somebody died in 1928. Well, so, um, her her dad had, uh, had an accident at work. He fell out of the cab of the engine from a Union Pacific. And uh, he was in a coma, basically, for mm. two weeks before he finally passed. And so I thought this was kind of interesting. So his is, he, he passed away at 66 years of age, survived by his, his wife. I'm so happy I found this article because two sons, one of the sons is named Vivian. <laughs> and I was really confused for quite some time. I was like, hooray for gay marriage because I saw that Vivian <laughs> was married to Margaret and they had two kids. And I'm like, how progressive? No, Vivian is apparently a boy. That's so funny, but I just found out that I have um, a great, 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 great grandparent named Ebenezer. But she's a great, great, great grandmother. Ebenezer grandma. Yeah. Ebenezer wow. Grandma. grandma and Ebenezer. Yeah. We like to play it fast and loose there. <laughs> I like it. Especially considering that they were living in like Puritan Salem at the time. Right? <laughs> but seriously, though, like, I saw Vivian Harder, and I was like, oh, my God, Hazel's sister <laughs> got married to a Margaret, and they were buried together, and how sweet is that? They even had two little kiddos. Uh, no, Vivian's a boy. Vivian's a dude. 
It's so like, nothing of note. It's like Joe and Lori and Little Women. I know. They're dudes. Threw me off. So, yes, um, I do have one little, uh, I couldn't find anything on Clarence's surviving daughter who did go on to live with his parents. So there's that. Um, unfortunately, that's, that's more like the usual. Mm-hmm. That's our usual, not finding out somebody's hobbies and how they spent their retirement. That's a wonderful life. And I I'm love glad we that. got to hear about it. Yeah. Uh, so this is absolutely random, but I love random facts, especially about towns. Two years after the murders and having absolutely nothing to do with them. Edwin Perkins invented Kool-Aid in Hastings, Nebraska. They have a Kool-Aid festival to celebrate that achievement every August. And everyone dyes their hair red. And Kool-Aid is Nebraska's official soft drink. Oh. (laughs) So I have a couple of delightful tidbits from Livingston Brothers, if you would like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. Okay. I would love that. Uh, I guess there had been a a recent eclipse. Those that lived in the belt of totality in the United States will not see another total eclipse of the sun for 219 years. That is a long look ahead, but the prophet that tells us that will miss it but a few seconds. The party that sold their possessions and predicted the end of the earth at this last eclipse missed her guess. In fact, nobody knows just how much. But anyway, Livingston Brothers are located at 415 West 2nd Street, phone 225 Ambulance Service. The eclipse had no effect on them. Things are going on in just the same old way. <laughs> um, uh, I think they were uh, mad at their employee today. So this is recommendation. Can you give a rec- me a recommendation, said the guy that had done nothing but watch the clock during the, during the entire time of his employment. Yes, said his employer, but I will get the tombstone man to write it. He is used to saying kindly words about the dead that we will have with us no more. If you need an ambulance, phone 225. You will find some other live fellows at the other end of the wire. Do you want to know what's really funny about that? <laughs> How much embalming fluid did they smoke? Yes. On the website, it says that the brothers were the only two employees. <laughs> <laughs> one living stem was just really pissed at the other one. I'm so wondering, funny. yeah, because <laughs> it did say that they it was just the two employees. Um, yeah. This is one that it says at the end that it was continued, but in true Hastings newspaper style. It was, it was never continued, so... <laughs> yeah. I half wonder if it was, and the newspaper's like, we can't print that. Actually, that's the funniest thing about that one. It's very much just a, a, a man remembering um, the places his grandfather took him when he was a youth, which is sweet, but uh, not as funny as this uh, thing about a man named Cobbs. So I'm going to give you that. The originations of names. If they call a man Cobb, you might not know the meaning of it, unless you should hear the story of the name as it was first applied or as history might pass it along. And in fact, that might not be the man's name at all. It might be a nickname because he stole cobs in a cob house, or he might have been stealing something else in the cob house. If one wins his name that way, it is liable to stick if it is only a nickname that has been won that way. But... (laughs) But corn sugar was not made of cobs. It is made out of corn. But when we have a year like this, we will have to irrigate before we can get the corn to make corn sugar. Livingston Brothers. Doesn't even give their phone number or address. All <laughs> oh, these delightful drug-addled men. 
I feel like embalming fluid can get you higher than we've ever imagined. <laughs> it must. These are some amazing trips. They forgot to actually say anything about their business. <laughs> right? All right. This is my final one. I'm not going to read you the poem from for Christmas. It scans horribly and sounds weird. Um, Shocked. So this is uh, no noodle on his car. Oh. Say, yelled the chief of police, what do you mean speeding along Main Street like a madman? Why in blazes don't you use your noodle? Noodle, gasped the man. Where in heck is the noodle? I have pushed and pulled and jiggered everything in the dashboard and I could not stop her. Livingston Brothers says it does not stand one in hand to know their business if it is only driving a car. What? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So the cop said you should slow down. No, I understood the words you said. <laughs> I wasn't sure. But I had to read it four times before I got it. It doesn't... In a, you don't even fully get it. You have to skip over a couple of places where they really struggle to express their thoughts clearly. Um, so Livingston Brothers say it does not stand one in hand to know their business if it is only driving a car. Stand one in hand. I don't know what that means. But. It, it doesn't. Uh, yeah. Like, I, I know what all the words mean, but together they don't compute. Yeah. Um, but I'm also not high on embalming fluid. So maybe that's the trick. Yeah. And just one more thing from Hastings, because I think the whole town was high on embalming fluid. Uh, I, I believe this was in the Hastings papers. I don't know why else I would have put this in my notes, but uh, I found this wonderful Newspaper advertisement free one three hundred dollar piano to the most popular baby in this city. <laughs> what is happening? What is happening? I'm done now. <laughs> that's, that's good because I'm done now too. <laughs> I mean, like I still have naked cowboy Tigger jumping on his tail, and my brain is now broken. For more information, call our store. And ask for manager of popular baby test. <laughs> what the hell is going on in this place? Uh, are, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, 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 uh. All right, I'm going to let Amber's brain try to reform into something brain-shaped. Why um, are they trying to collect babies? <laughs> Everybody's got to collect something. You got to have a hobby, Amber. So we have a patron shout out today. Two of them, actually, and then three when you had uh, my buddy Star Spankenberger. So I'm going to sing these. Welcome to the Patreon, G.E. and Organized Wallflower, and your new friend, Star Spankenberger. <laughs> Welcome. I'm so sorry. <laughs> we're all sorry. Maybe we're high. Yeah. I think that was um, a good show, and we should end it there. By telling you, don't smoke the embalming fluid. And Amber, um, what's your do or don't? Maybe open a goddamn window if you're embalming things. <laughs> yeah. And don't forget to set your parking brake. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Oh, my God. Exactly two hours. Oh, sources. <laughs> do we need sources? Sources. 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 Oh, my God. I'm going to go first because you're crazy. <laughs> Obviously, yes. Uh, find a grave and then newspapers.com. Thank you, Chris Garcia, the Columbus Telegram, the Lincoln Star, the Lincoln Journal Star, 
not to be confused with one another, the Grand Island Independent, Franklin County News, and Hastings Daily Tribune. Okay, so my sources were pretty much a lot of the same, but I gotta scroll all the way down here. Come on, the music is playing, the music is playing. Okay, um, Find a Grave, Ancestry.com, Hastings Daily Tribune, Adams County Democrat, Harvard Courier, Lincoln Star, Omaha Daily News, Nebraska State Journal, McCook Daily Gazette, and Wikipedia. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. Thank y'all. That's so floppy. <laughs>